All right, good morning. Welcome to our Sunday School Hour here at Long Hill Baptist Church in Trumbull, Connecticut. Uh, good to have you with us uh, today. Uh, today we're going to uh, continue our second lesson in a four-week series looking at Islam and Christianity. Uh, today we'll look at the practices of Islam. Again, our purpose is, is not to offend uh, anyone who may be uh, watching or listening, but rather to um, draw distinctions uh, between two very different faiths, uh, especially so that Christians may be in a uh, more knowledgeable position from which to share our faith uh, from God's word. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. We'll have Zach come and uh, teach for us this morning. Father, thank you so much this morning for the truth of thy words. Lord, thank you for giving your words and for supernaturally preserving them. Father, we pray that this morning that you will work here now in this lesson. Equip us, Lord, with an understanding uh, of a faith that is very different uh, so that we may have a, a more knowledgeable place from which to uh, share our faith and to draw uh, contrast, Lord, that would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you work here now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. And as Pastor said, today is going to be lesson number two of our study between um, Islam and biblical Christianity. And this week we are going to be considering the practices of <clears throat> Islam and the Muslim faith. We saw last week what the Muslim community believes, and this week we're going to see what they actually practice. Um, I appreciate all the encouragement and good feedback from the first lesson. Um, one of them was that we were going a little bit too fast, and so today we're going to slow down a little bit, and uh, we were going 100 miles per hour, so we're going to go slow down a little bit. I've got about half as much notes for today, so we'll, we'll go through and, and try to learn at a little bit of a, of a slower pace. One of the things I did want to start off with is just a little bit of review um, from last week especially for those who maybe didn't have the chance to consider what we studied in the first, first lesson. And so in our first lesson, again, what we did study was what Muslims actually believe. And we started by explaining why considering this is, is even necessary. And I think perhaps the most important reason that we cited was that Muslims do not have the biblical plan of salvation. They don't have um, the biblical Christ. And um, we certainly want to consider ways that we can give them the gospel in a way that would not offend them. We also consider the fact that we as Christians are called to study our, to show ourselves as approved, and we're also called to have an answer, uh, to be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that we have within us. We considered that the Muslim faith has two sections. The first one was a body of beliefs. That's what we studied last week. And it's also made up of religious practices. And that's what we're going to be studying this week. <clears throat> and in a nutshell, really in a basic uh, overview, we studied the six core beliefs of Islam. The first one was Allah. And we saw that Allah is who God is to a Muslim person. 
Uh, the Muslims believe in the existence of one God, and his name is Allah. And we considered a few different attributes of who Allah is and who they believe that he is and, and how he behaves as their deity. Then we considered angels. We considered the second core doctrine of the Muslim faith. And we considered that, similar to Christianity, they believe in both um, good angels and bad angels, which they consider demons as well. And we saw that the main purpose of angels, according to the Muslim faith, was to obey and carry out the will of Allah, who again is their, their deity in the Muslim faith. The third thing we considered was what they um, think of as the books. We saw that Muslims believe that Allah, <clears throat> their deity, gave 104 sacred books, but that most of those have been lost. But we saw that they do have a main sacred text, and that is the Quran. And the Quran is like their Bible, the equivalent to the Bible, and that's what they study, that's what they teach, and that's what they, they recite and read in their, in their rituals. Um, we also saw the great respect that a Muslim person gives to the Quran. The fourth thing we saw was, as far as their core beliefs, was the prophets. We saw that there were two major um, parts um, that they believe in, but we saw that their main prophet that they believe in is Muhammad. And that's a name that's going to continue um, to pop up as we continue to study um, the Muslim faith. <clears throat> The fifth thing was we saw their beliefs in the day of resurrection and judgment. And there is where we considered what they actually believe as far as salvation. And we came to the conclusion that yes, Islam is a works-based salvation. We came to that conclusion and that's something that we're going to continue to look at today. And then lastly, we looked at their idea of predestination. Um, which was the idea that Muslims believe that everything that happens is a, a basis of what Allah has said or Allah has willed. Everything that happens um, is because of Allah. And so last week we looked at these main beliefs, and this week we're going to look at what they actually practice, and we'll see how these beliefs play into what they actually practice this morning. The first thing that I want us to consider is that Muslims practice both personal and corporately in a very regimented way. They regiment it down to the very smallest detail. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to Ephesians chapter number 2. We're going to be there in just a few moments, Ephesians chapter number 2. And this morning what we're going to consider are what what many believe to be the five pillars of what hold up the quote-unquote house of Islam. And these five pillars, again, are going to be the five main practices of what a Muslim person is going to practice as part, as their, as part of their um, Islamic beliefs. Before we get into that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll consider those. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity um, to consider the Islamic faith. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, learn about it, I pray that as we study it, that again, Lord, you would fulfill our purpose of um, seeking to desire to be able to give the gospel to a Muslim person in a way that they would be willing to hear it, in a way that they would be able to understand it. Lord, I pray you would help us to realize that these aren't just useless facts, Lord, 
but their knowledge that we can use um, to better fulfill your purpose as a church in total, which is giving your great commission. We thank you for everything you've done, and Jesus and I pray. Amen. So, again, there's going to be five main pillars, or you can consider them practices, pillars or practices, for the Muslim faith. The first one that we're going to consider this morning is going to be the confession of faith. They call it the shahada. The shahada. You may have actually heard of that term before. It's actually pretty, pretty common when it comes to um, the Islamic faith. And so the first thing is the confession of faith. And we touched on this a little bit in our last lesson. And I just wanted to expound a little bit more on it today. Um, the first pillar is going to be reciting frequently this Muslim creed. And again, that creed is this. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. That is the creed, that is the core of the Islamic faith. These words do not appear, however, anywhere in the Quran, which I thought was interesting. However, the shahada literally means to bear witness. That's what this word shahada means. And this is the foundation and the profession which unites all Muslims around the world. If there was one chord that united all Muslims together, it's this recitation of the fact that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. It is the simplest and most recited creed in the world. Now, consider this. No one can become a Muslim without reciting this creed. But it's interesting, if someone does, then they're suddenly believed to be a Muslim. It's almost as if this is the easy believism formula of a Muslim person. Now, it's not just one thing that can be said. There are a few things that, that are key. Number one, it has to be said with conviction. They actually have to believe what they're saying. It can't just be a, a mindless recitation of the creed. And also, it has to be done before witnesses. There's, there has to be people there who actually hear it, who see you reciting this creed. But again, if you say these words with conviction and in front of witnesses, you are then considered a Muslim person at that point. Obviously not a grown or matured Muslim person, but that's where your, your Muslim journey, we could say, begins. So, I guess one might be considering, is this creed really that big of a deal within the, the Muslim community? And I would say yes, because you can find it pretty much everywhere. You'll find it on the Saudi Arabian flag. You'll see it in mosques. You'll see it on the doorpost of someone who holds to the Islamic faith. It is said as a child is born. So when someone's born, it's said and as someone dies as a form of blessing. So literally the very first words that a Muslim person hears is this creed, and the very last thing that a Muslim person will hear is this creed again. It's also used as a charm to drive away what they consider evil. And if you remember in our first lesson, they very much really do believe in evil, those demons which they call, they call jinn. Now again, reciting this creed is considered good luck, and it's also considered a means of personal protection. So 
Um, it's almost like if we wish someone well or we say God bless you, this is a creed that could be given as kind of like a blessing of protection over a Muslim person. Now, with each of these practices, except for perhaps one, we're going to consider how this practice could be compared to what we believe as Christians and what the Bible teaches. And so we have the Muslim creed. Now let's compare that with what the Bible teaches. Well, the Bible teaches that it's not a creed that brings someone to salvation, but rather it's a real repentance from sin and faith in Christ alone. And that's the only way for us to get to heaven. I had you open up to Ephesians chapter number two, and I'll give you one guess as to where we're going to be. Verses eight and nine. If you would read them with me, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. These two verses fly in the face of what Islam teaches. Number one, we see that there's faith required in the Christian faith. It's not just a belief, it's not just a creed, but there is a faith, there's a trust that's necessary in not ourselves, but rather a person, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. But then we see in verse number nine, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And so again, this, we see that this is the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that there's no good works. Our good works are as filthy rags before the Lord, before we're saved. Nothing can get us into heaven other than a true repentance from sin and a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how we'll compare the Muslim creed to what we as, as Christians believe at this point. As you can see, it's certainly very different, um, but something that a Muslim person needs to understand if we're going to bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So our first pillar was this creed. The second pillar that we're going to study this morning is the idea of prayers, and they call it the salat. If you want to spell it, it's S-A-L-A-T, the salat. Now, a Muslim person will memorize prayers and recite them um, multiple times a day uh, in a single day. Prayer is more of a ritual than a relationship with God. And this is something, again, we considered in our first lesson, and we're going to continue to see it, is that prayer is not, in, in, to a Muslim, prayer is not a relationship with God. They're not getting access to the throne room of Allah when you come to pray, but rather it's a ritual. It's just another way to attempt to get to heaven. They're not able to, to uh, bow the ear of, of God and have a relationship with him and, and understand the heart of God, but rather it's just another thing that they've been taught to do. The devout Muslim must pray five times a day while facing Mecca. So we're, gonna, we're not going to get into too much detail, but I did want to give you a little bit of an understanding of practically what Muslims believe about what they must do to pray. So again, the devout Muslim must pray five times a day while facing Mecca. The prayers must be performed according to a prescribed ritual. They can't just pray five times a day, whatever they want. There are specific prayers in a specific way that, they, and that they're going to do it. Now consider this. 
A Muslim is very proud of his prayer routine, and they often view Christians as virtually prayerless. And this is something that kind of caught my attention, because we consider how often we pray a day, perhaps it's maybe two or three times, and the Muslim person will actually look down on Christians because they don't pray enough, which I thought was interesting and, and perhaps a little bit convicting, maybe. Um, but again, the, the, the Muslim person will choose to pray five times a day. Now, interestingly enough, there's no command for this in the Quran. Their scriptures doesn't command this to happen, but rather this is just another tradition that's been passed down that um, the devout Muslim is called to practice. Now, we mentioned there were five times, and I think it's interesting to consider what those five times are. The Muslim will pray at daybreak. They will pray just before noon. They'll pray in the afternoon. They'll pray after sunset, and then they'll pray at nightfall. So again, daybreak, just before noon, in the afternoon, after sunset, and nightfall. These are the five times um, that a Muslim person will, will pray. Now, this is interesting to consider. In Muslim countries, the call to prayer is called a muzanin, um, which is an Islamic way of saying prayer crier. And a sound is sounded from a tower called a minaret, which is a part of the mosque. So if you're living in an Islamic country, there's actually going to be a sound that's made that everyone could hear to kind of give a signal that, hey, it's, it's time to pray. And so it's almost as, a, as an aid, as an aid to them. And note this, this is something that I found very interesting. Each and every morning, this, this prayer crier is going to shout out and proclaim this prayer. So consider as a Muslim person, you're waking up in the morning and this is what you're going to hear. God is great. God is great. Confess that there is no God but Allah. Confess that there is no God but Allah. Confess that Muhammad is his prophet, and they'll, they'll double it each time. Confess that Muhammad is his prophet. Testify that there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is his prophet. Now listen to the last line. O slaves of Allah, Give life to prayer, for prayer is better than sleep. Now, we may agree with the fact that prayer is better than sleep, but I want you to consider this fact. O oh, slaves of Allah, we've talked about this master-slave relationship, and you may be considering, is that something that a Muslim person really perceives? Is that something that they really believe? Well, if you're living in an Islamic country, every morning you're reminded that you're a slave of Allah. You're not a friend of Allah. You're not a son of Allah. You're a slave of Allah. Now, compare that to Christianity. What a friend we have in Jesus. We can come, our Father, which art in heaven, as we, as we pray. It's, it's so different, and, it, and quite frankly, it's sad, and it, and it should give us a heart, a greater heart to give the gospel to a Muslim person because they can have a relationship with the one true God, a true relationship that's father-son as opposed to master and, and slave. Now, when it comes to when a person will pray, we've considered that 
Now, let's consider the days that they pray. It is going to be every day, but there are specific days of worship that a Muslim person will, will practice. Muslims, especially men, they're required to worship in a mosque each Friday. So as we, whereas we will practice um, coming to church on Sunday, uh, they will go to the mosque on each Friday because they consider Friday to be their holy day. Now, you may ask, why, why Friday? Well, the answer to that is, is that it's considered that Friday is the day that the sun, the sun and Adam were created. So because of that, they believe that um, Friday is their holy day. Now, before praying, Muslims must perform a purification ritual. This is interesting. The Muslim must wash their hands, their feet, and part of their face before they even consider praying. They're also specifically supposed to wash their nose. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because it's believed that the devil spends time overnight in the nose, which I thought was interesting. Um, we have this idea that there's angels on both sides of you constantly, but they also truly do believe, it's, it's not just something silly, they, they truly believe that the devil can spend time overnight in, in their nose. And so that's why they will wash their nose specifically before they go ahead and pray. But consider this again, there's no personal prayer, but rather a recitation of words. Prayer involves standing, bowing, kneeling, prostration, and sitting. And this is done in a, in a ritualistic fashion. They'll go throughout these stances. But again, it's, it's nothing personal. It's just a set of ritualistic words. Muslims must learn Arabic in order to pray these certain prayers. So again, they're Perhaps you're an Islamic person in, in America. Your first, um, your first language is, is English, of course. You're still going to be required to learn at least a certain set of Arabic words so that you can pray these prayers. You're not even going to be able to pray in your, in your first language at this point. Now, it's also interesting that similar to Catholics, Muslims will pray to what they consider dead saints for intercession for their loved ones. So again, if they, if they fear that perhaps their loved one who has passed on did not do enough, perhaps their scale of good didn't outweigh their scale of, of bad, they believe that they can pray to, to saints, which may actually give them an opportunity to get a chance into paradise. Now, let's compare all of this to what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that rather prayer is a way for us to communicate with God our Father. Again, rather than a slave-master relationship, Jesus models in Matthew 5, we won't go there because we've seen it a lot recently, but we see a son-daughter-father relationship type of prayer rather than a slave-master relationship. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I can come to God and call him Father and have someone that I can just talk to when I need to. And not only is he just any someone, he's the creator of the universe. And so I, that's pretty cool, and, and I think we can be thankful for that this morning. All right, so we're going to move on to the third pillar or practice of the Muslim faith, and that's going to be almsgiving. 
ALMS giving. And, or if you wanted to simplify it, they consider it the poor tax, and they call it the zakat. Z-A-K-A-T, the zakat. And it's interesting, Muslims are required to give 2.5% of their personal income or wealth to the poor and needy, but only to those in the house of Islam. So this is gonna be similar to the Christian tithe, but notice that the percentage is, is different. It's, it's two and a half percent, and it's to be given not to the church, but rather to the poor, but only the Muslim poor. It's not to be given to any other people, but only the Muslim poor. Now, almsgiving is a key part of a Muslim's salvation by works. Remember, they're being saved by their works. This is a key part, and they are told to expect to expect, quote-unquote, unfathomable blessings as you pay it. So similar to Christi biblical Christianity, when we choose to tithe, we can expect uh, to receive blessing. They believe that when they give this 2.5% uh, poor tax, that they, could be, they can expect to receive blessings from Allah himself. Now the zakat is paid once a year out of one's carefully calculated annual income. So there's not any opportunity to give it weekly or monthly. Rather, it's a one-time payment um, that's based on your annual income. Now, most consider it a religious duty and will do it without any compassion for the poor and needy. Now, obviously, we're not going to assume that that's the case for everyone, um, but it is interesting to consider how, again, this is just another ritualistic practice. Whereas um, in biblical Christianity, we'll give out of a heart of joy, or at least we're commanded to do so. This is just another way to, to get yourself closer into heaven. Now, of course, um, the Muslim person desires paradise. They're going to do everything they can to get there. And so, again, they, they, will, they will do this, but perhaps not as willingly as, as we would consider, um, again, the reason is simply because it's, it's just another practice, it's just another way to get closer to heaven. Now, let's compare that to what the Bible teaches. Of course, the Bible teaches that Christians are to give back 10% of their income. Of course, understanding the fact that nothing that we're given is actually ours. Um, all of it is the Lord's. We're just made stewards of it. And so we're, we're actually just giving back 10% of what God has given us at that point. Um, of course, we see tithing modeled um, all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Micah 5 even goes as much to, to say that those who disregard tithing are robbing God himself. Um, and so it's definitely something that, that we seek to avoid. But again, it's, it's quite a bit different because whereas in, in the Islamic faith, they're giving to the poor, we're giving the money back, back to the Lord himself. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a main contrast there, whereas they're giving money to people, we're giving it back to the Lord himself. Um, of course, through the church, but back to the Lord himself. <clears throat> the fourth practice or pillar that we're going to consider moving on is going to be fasting. And this is one that um, we'll spend a little bit of time on because I think for those who don't have a ton of understanding about um, Islam or, or Muslims, how they practice, this is something that they may know about. They may have heard about Ramadan. They may have heard about 
fasting. And this may be, um, if nothing else, this may be something that you're familiar with or that at least you've heard of. And so, yes, the famous fasting month is Ramadan, um, which is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. The beginning of Ramadan commemorates something. It's not just a, a random month that they chose. There's a reason why they do it. And what it does is it commemorates the day that Muhammad received his first revelation from the angel Gabriel. If you remember in our past um, lesson, we learned that the Quran was given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel over a 20 to 30 year period. And so what this is commemorating is the first time that Gabriel came to Muhammad. And when Gabriel came to Muhammad and after he was given his first revelation, he fasted. That's the key. So Muhammad fasted. And in honor of him, Muslims do the same. So if you're ever asked the question, why do Muslims choose to fast during Ramadan? Well, this is the um, religious belief behind it. Again, it's the, the first time that the angel Gabriel came to Muhammad and gave him the first part of the Quran. So that's the understanding behind it. It is believed that during Ramadan, that the gates of heaven are open and prayers are carried directly to the throne of God. And I find this interesting because we were talking before about how all the prayers that a Muslim person will pray up until this point are going to be very ritualistic. They're already laid out, they're already made for you, and you're just praying them as, as a way of, of doing what's right, what's considered right. But notice at this time, during the prayer of Ramadan, they can pray to, to Allah and their prayers, they have direct access to God, to Allah during this time. Now, you consider and compare that to Christianity. I praise God that every single day I have direct access to him. I can come boldly before the throne of grace and know that God is listening to my individual prayer. But again, compared that to what the Muslim believes, he believes that his prayers are only carried directly to the throne of God during this time of Ramadan. But again, that's, that's a reason why most people in the Islamic faith will choose to practice this. Now, fasting is compulsory from sunrise to sunset. So when do they fast? From sunrise to sunset. And how long does this last? Well, it lasts a month, so it's 29 to 30 days, depending on the month. And the fast is defined as total abstinence from food, drink, tobacco, perfumes, really anything that would be uh, considered a pleasure. Um, it's uh, a total abstinence from any type of, of personal pleasure. This I found interesting. During this time, even swallowing one's own saliva is, is prohibited. It's supposed to be um, prevented at that point. Um, so they're very serious about making this fast as regimented and as real as possible. This month-long fast is seen as one of the vital good works, hear this, one of the vital good works that can gain admission to paradise. So again, we just saw that the sakat, the giving of that poor tax, was considered one of the great works that can get a Muslim person to heaven. This, again, is a great work that, again, can bring someone to paradise. And so you'd wonder, why would, a, why would a Muslim person choose to 
to, in a sense, punish themselves during this time, well, again, it's, a, it's another way that they can hope to get to paradise. And so that's why they would choose to do it. I do want to mention here that the subject of fasting can be a good bridge to start talking to a Muslim. Because again, it's, it's something that we all kind of have a, have a basic understanding of. But it's best not to be too challenging during these days. Again, we're referring to as if you were talking to a Muslim person during the time of Ramadan. Um, as you may receive an unwanted response, um, as they may be disinclined to hear. So basically all we're trying to say here is, is that during the time of Ramadan, it's actually a good time to talk to a Muslim person because um, they're, they're praying, they're fasting. It's a specific time that they're doing something that they believe um, religiously. And I've actually seen this happen. We, we gave the gospel to somebody. It just happened to be the time of Ramadan. And during this time, they are a little bit more open to discussing their faith. But you have to be careful because... Again, this is a time that they're focusing on their faith, and they can become very religious and, um, I'm trying to put it in the right way, um, very passionate about their faith to the point where they won't consider what you're saying. So you want to make sure that you approach it properly. But again, this is a time where if you come with an open mind and they come with an open mind um, and you learn about each other, you could actually give them the gospel during this time because they're more open to talking about what what they believe. Moving on from there, we're going to go to our fifth pillar, which is considered the pilgrimage to Mecca. Again, this is something that's perhaps a little bit more well-known. Um, another word for it is the Hajj, that's spelled H-A-J-J, the Hajj to Mecca. And this word Hajj basically just means to make one's way toward Mecca or Allah. And um, somebody may be wondering, why, why specifically Mecca? Why is this place so important? Well, it's the birthplace of Muhammad. And again, as we've understood, Muhammad is a, is a great player in the history of the um, Islamic faith. And so they believe that this is where he was born, and that's why they have this Hajj to Mecca. Each Muslim, male or female, is expected to make a seven-day pilgrimage to Mecca, again, Muhammad's birthplace, at least once in their lifetime. So this isn't something that's going to be done once every year. Um, it's not going to be done thousands of times, but they're expected to do this at least once in their lifetime. The pilgrimage must be made on the 12th month of their Muslim calendar. So there are specific rituals and guidelines for this as well. It must be made in the 12th month of the Muslim calendar. And the pilgrimage is expected to, the pilgrim, excuse me, is expected to make a seven-fold walk around um, what they call Kaaba, which is the most, most sacred shrine of Islam. So once you're at Mecca, there's a specific shrine called the Kaaba, and the pilgrim is supposed to make a seven-fold walk around the Kaaba. The pilgrim is expected to kiss a black stone that is lodged in the wall of the Kaaba, which was supposedly given to Abraham by the angel Gabriel. So as a sense of respect, as a sign of respect to the Kaaba, they are expected to kiss a black stone that's in the Kaaba. Once they've done that, before going home, the Muslim must visit the tomb of Muhammad at Medina. So again, this is where Muslim, this is where 
Muhammad was born, but this is also where the tomb of Muhammad is. And I think it's interesting to consider this. Um, there's a great respect for Muhammad in the Islamic faith. Um, and I wouldn't go as far as to say that they, they deify him, but it's, they have a great respect um, for this person as, as a prophet, um, so much that they'll take this great travel just to see um, different things about him. And, and again, this is a work that can get the Muslim person closer to paradise or closer to heaven. When the pilgrim, whether it be male or female, whoever it is, when they come home, he is revered as pure from sin as when he was born. Did you catch that? When a Muslim person, when they come back from this pilgrimage, they are considered to be as pure from sin as when he was born. This morning, what did we sing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We understand in biblical Christianity, the only thing that can wash away our sin is the blood of Christ. But it's interesting to compare that to what a Muslim person believes. They believe that going and taking this trip is what can wash them, wash their sin away. Finally, as we just have a few minutes left, we're going to consider, we've already considered five, um, five pillars, but there's one more that's sometimes considered a sixth pillar, and that is the holy war, or jihad. Um, and again, this perhaps out of all of these may be considered, um, may be the most familiar to you. And there's a lot of things that could be said about this practice, about this pillar, um, but we want to be sensitive about it, and so we're going to consider just a few things. Many Muslim people will consider the holy war, again, jihad, to be a sixth pillar or a sixth main practice of Islam. Of all the pillars, again, this is one that's considered the most sensitive. And for the sake of this lesson, we're going to simply define jihad as the obligation. Here's how we're going to define it. The obligation upon every Muslim, especially young men, to fight against infidels. So if someone asks you, what is jihad? Again, we'll define it as this. The obligation upon every Muslim, especially young men, to fight against infidels. Now the question is, what, what, what is an infidel? Well, the Quran does instruct the Muslim to strike at the neck of the infidel. And yes, Christians are considered infidels. Infidel would be anyone who's not part of the Muslim faith, who's not in the house of Islam at that point. Now, someone may be asking, Brother Zach, does, does the Quran actually teach that? And again, just for our reference, we will consider one verse in the Quran. Um, it's Surah, which again, their, their chapters are called Surahs. Uh, Surah 489 says, seize them and kill them wherever you find them. And that's referring to the infidel. Now, while many Muslims try to present themselves as peaceful, consider this, again, this is being said in love, while many Muslim people will consider themselves to be peaceful, there is no room for the idea of a moderate Muslim person. The Quran says that a peacemaker has no part in heaven. And if you wanted to reference that, that's Surah 495. The Quran says in Surah 495, that a peacemaker has no part in heaven. 
Now you remember, a Muslim person all throughout their life, everything they're doing, every single ritual is trying to get them closer and closer to heaven, trying to get them to paradise. And so if there's anything in the Quran that's going to tell them, hey, this is something that's not going to help you get to, to paradise, they're going to pay attention to that. And again, Surah 495 says that a peacemaker has no part in heaven. Now, please consider this as we close. Understanding this should not make us angry, but rather it should increase our burden to reach the lost Muslim soul to Christ. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Understanding the sixth pillar should not anger us, but rather should increase our burden to win the lost Muslim soul to Christ. And let's consider also what the Bible teaches. The Bible never once, of course, indicates violence as a means of winning souls. In Matthew 28 and other places, we're given the Lord's model for um, winning souls. And that is the Great Commission. We're, we're seeing that we're supposed to win the soul, baptize them, and then disciple them. We're never seeing any um, indication or an, an approval of violence given by God, but rather we're seen to lovingly give the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ alone. And so when we, can, when we consider the two, there, there is a difference. But again, this should not anger us, but rather give us a, a, a heart for the lost soul. Understanding these five, or perhaps even six, main pillars or practices of Islam, helps us each to understand what, a, what our Muslim neighbor thinks and believes. So not only does it help us to understand what they believe, um, but these practices are pretty much an example of their beliefs in action um, at that point. And now that we're equipped with this knowledge, next week we're going to consider what Muslims believe about Christian doctrine. So today and last week we considered what Muslims believe and practice. And next week, we're going to consider what a Muslim person believes about Christian doctrine. And I think that perhaps this is going to be the most important lesson because we want to understand what the assumptions are of the Muslim person are coming into um, a, a, a conversation with them. Because they're going to have some preconceived notions that if we don't know about, we, we may not be able to address them and we may not be able to um, uh, give them the gospel in a way that they'll be able to understand. So if we can understand what these preconceived notions are and hit them on the head directly when we're giving the gospel to a Muslim person, we're going to have a much higher likelihood of not only, number one, being able to talk with them, but being able to give the gospel in a way that they're going to be able to understand and that they'll, they'll accept. And so, of course, this is going to help better equip us to reaching a Muslim person to the Lord. And that's going to be our goal. And so let's go ahead and pray, and we'll close. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity um, to look into your word, of course, and to also consider what the Islamic faith teaches as far as um, practices, what they actually they do. And Lord, I pray that with this knowledge that we would better be equipped to win our Muslim neighbors to the Lord. And Lord, we pray um, that you would help us to take these things to heart 
and to use them for that purpose. And we'll give you all the glory and the honor for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.